Do you remember when you were young and uh, you would say to your siblings, you're not the boss of me? How many of you kids are in here now and you say that regularly? You're not the boss of me. Well, there's somebody on the playground and they try and control how everything's running and you, you think, you're not the boss of me. That isn't just something that uh, is in you when you're a child. It's something that actually stays with us into our adulthood. And that as grown adults, um, that frustration never really leaves when we feel like our lives aren't in our own control. There's this anxiety uh, that comes when we feel like our, our future is out of our hands or our life is somehow being dictated by external circumstances. We want to yell at the government or uh, the powers that be that have created the economic landscape to be as it is or the oppressive leader or the controlling friend or family member. We want to yell, you're not the boss of me. We feel like our life is in their hands. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And as we've been working chapter by chapter through the work of Solomon, this wisdom literature, Solomon, uh, the author, superintended by the Holy Spirit, of course, continues to touch on these heavy, heavy subjects without apology so that we can uh, consider our own hopelessness and turn towards hope. And so in chapter 8, this text that we're about to read, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, Solomon is grappling with injustice, and he's grappling with the unfairness of life. And he's, he's, uh, he's got this anger and this anxiousness that he's touching on that arises when we feel like we're all at the mercy of circumstances. And so this text is, is, is doing this intentionally so that it can redirect us towards wisdom. There's a very specific kind of wisdom that is revealed in chapter 8, which we're going to get to as we unpack, that actually lifts us out of the shadow of fear, out of the shadows of anger and the shadows of restlessness. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, softening its harshness. I say, keep the king's commandment according to the sake of your vow to God. Do not be hasty to avoid your duty. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for the king does whatever pleases him. Where the word of the king is, there's power. And who can say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both the time and the judgment. Because for every matter, there is a time and there is a judgment. Even when your misery is increasing greatly. For he does not know what will happen, and so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has the power over the spirit to retain their spirit, and no one has power in the day of their death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I've seen, and I've considered every work that is done under the sun, where one rules over another to their own hurt. And I've seen wicked people buried with honor, who would come and go from the temple, and their wickedness was forgotten in the very city where they committed it. This is meaningless. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the wicked is fully set to do evil. And though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, I surely know that it will be well with those who revere and worship God, who stand in awe before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, 
because he has no reverence for God. There's a futility which occurs on the earth. There are righteous people to whom life happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom life happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And this is meaningless. So I commend enjoyment because there is nothing better under the sun than for a person to eat and drink and be merry. For this joy will remain with them in their labor all their days of their life, which God gives them under the sun. This is God's word. Now this text starts out by saying, there's a lot of things that you have no control over in life. And then it ends by saying, eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy your life. So how do you get there? How does that work? All these things you have absolutely no control over in your life, and then in the end he says, eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy your life. How do we go from restless worry to restful joy? Ecclesiastes is this book that's afraid to ask these massive questions. They're all raised by Solomon. The answers are all found in the one who's greater than Solomon, Christ alone. If you're new to, um, if you're new to the scriptures or you're here and you're exploring faith, and you're have wonder, you know, wondering about Christianity, the Bible talks about Jesus as though he is wisdom personified. It's kind of like, for me to preach a, a, a text, what I have to do every week is I go back to the original languages and I read those and I look at the historical content. You do all these things that they teach you to do in seminary. And the whole point is I'm trying to, what they call, exegete the text. I'm not trying to tell you what I think it means, because who cares what I think. I'm trying to tell you what the text means. And so when the Bible says Jesus is wisdom personified, it's saying Jesus is a perfect interpretation of who God is and what God's about. So all of the questions that Solomon raises are answered in the one greater than Solomon, who's Jesus. Now, as, this, as we progress through the sermon, we're going to get there. So you're going to see what I mean later on. So when we start this, so let's, we'll, we'll unpack this. So the very first verse says that wisdom makes your face shine. And uh, how many of you remember when you were teenagers and you woke up in the morning, your face was not shining, right? You had resting teen face. You're like, Ugh. except on Christmas morning. Even teenagers on Christmas morning arise with a face that shines. It's like there's this acute awareness of something good that is already accomplished for them, that is already on its way. It's a sure thing. They have assurance of it, and they wake up with a completely different countenance, right? How many of you kids are like that on Christmas morning? How many of you kids are not? Let, how many of you kids have a different expression when you're getting up for school on Monday than you do on Christmas morning? It's not the same because you, you have this acute awareness you go to bed with on Christmas Eve, right? You're, the face is shining in, in the in the Hebrew. Um, th this is a repeated kind of an idiom in their language, right? The face is shining. It's like our English. It's like our English our English saying, um, "Oh, your face lit up." Oh man, it, their eyes lit up. When you think about um, how that happens, like a, a child's eyes light up when they get surprised. You can play peekaboo with a baby over and over and over and over and over and over, and they never get tired of it. Right? You get tired of it because they're endlessly young and you're boring. Right? So what you need to understand about the gospel is that our God is endlessly young. His grace is endlessly good. His wisdom is endlessly, you know, beautiful and it makes the face shine like the infant that never gets tired of it but we're boring and our sin makes us boring and oppression and difficulty and injustice in the world makes us boring when I say makes us boring I mean it makes our faces dark 
It causes our countenance to, uh, to be at unrest. And so there is a wisdom that's available for you in Jesus Christ that actually makes your face shine. And that's what the, that's what the text begins with, and it, you know, then we kind of unpack it from there to see how this plays out. So um, what the text is suggesting is that God offers this wisdom that can pierce through the darkness of frustration so that you can find rest in circumstances where you shouldn't be able to find rest. Because as I read through those first 15 verses, nothing about that was good. It's actually a very unjust, oppressive situation. Solomon is looking out at um, a world where you know, he doesn't have a lot of control, or in some cases any control. He doesn't have any reason to have a face that shines, but he's saying there's a wisdom that would make that possible. And um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the, the Apostle Paul picks up on this very idea. And this is what he says. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And as well, with, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the uh, same image of God from one degree of glory to the next. It's, it's increasing you know, growth. The wisdom being offered here by Solomon, accessible by Jesus. And the reason Paul uses that same phrase is because there's a, there's a shining uh, rest that's available. So the first nine verses as we read through them, they, they repeat this theme that keeps showing up in Ecclesiastes over and over, right? Oh, there's injustice, and there's, the world isn't fair. And so in this case, the way that Solomon gets us to look at it is he uses a king as an example. He says, there's a, there's a king that's doing all sorts of injustice, but that king will never be brought to justice because that king has the power to define justice and redefine justice and keep redefining it so that it suits him Right? Can you think of world leaders that that would describe? Can you think of people in pulpits over the course of church history that that could describe? Can you think of times in your life where that describes you? I can. Think of times where that describes me. Constantly maneuvering things and moving, the sh- moving shifting things around so you can k- keep on redefining what's right and good and true so that you can remain in power. We've all been, we're all capable of that kind of manipulation. But Paul, or I'm sorry, but Solomon looks and he says, no, there's a king that won't be brought to justice because he just keeps re- redefining justice. And this is why Solomon's so angry about it, is because he looks out across the corridor of human history and he says, you know, pe- this happens continually and people get away with it. And they die having never been brought to justice. This is why he's going, this is meaningless, this is crazy. I mean, is, couldn't karma be a thing where good people get good things and bad people get bad things, so be good and your life will be good? I mean, wouldn't that be great? But that's not life. So he's really frustrated. And some of us have been really frustrated too. And uh, so he says this, and he, re- and he realizes that, you know, a lot of anxiety can, can kind of come out as a result of living in a world that's like that. Let's put this on the ground for a second, because Solomon's talking about an ancient king, but let's make it real. Here we are, 2018, Canada. We're a year out from the next federal election. So you can relax, because I'm not going to be partisan, because that wouldn't be appropriate. But it is very appropriate for me to, for me to be political, right? All, all of God's uh, teachers and preachers were political. And, this, and what I mean by that is thoughtful about what's going on in the city and how does the gospel apply to our civility, right? That's what I mean. We're a year out from our federal, next federal election. And you could walk into a room at any point and you could say two words that would cause the fur to, fur to fly. You could walk into a room and you could say, hey, what do you think about the pipeline? And what do you think about carbon tax? And then pff, there will be no civil discourse there will be heightened hyperbole, fear-mongering. There will be such identity politics that's so stratospheric, and, and particularly, uh, and by the way, if you're here and you're, and you're new to the church, I'm not talking about, you know, 
people that don't go to church do this because Christians are good people. I'm saying a group of Christians could be in a room talking about politics in such a way that they would convince you that this is Team Jesus, Party Jesus, and that any self-respecting Christian that doesn't vote for Team Jesus, um, you know, needs to get saved. Because this, this guy is definitely going to bring certain salvation, and uh, this guy or this girl is certainly going to usher in the apocalypse. You know I mean, Christians talk like that. It's insanity, and because we look to, uh, to politics as these little mini-messiahs. So this is what Solomon's grappling with. He's grappling with, our lives are in their hands, and that's why everybody freaks out every time they go to the, go to the polls. The reason why there's such anxiety... Uh, over politics is because and that's why they even use the term identity politics because it's like I have intrinsically attached who I am to this particular party this platform or this set of values or whatever and you're linked to that thing and historically speaking as you look over you know even take our province of Ontario we have flip-flopped since since the beginning of Canada as a nation we have flip-flopped between uh, essentially a liberal and a conservative government. There was one week when the farmers squeaked in, and there was one week when the NDP squeaked in. But other than that, historically speaking, we just go back and forth and back and forth, and we'll probably, here's a prediction, continue to go back and forth, okay? So if you continually place all your trust in these things, you're going to have the kind of anxiety that Solomon had in, in Ecclesiastes 8. If you think they're actually in control of your life and your joy, if you live in that way. And so, anyways, at any rate, this is, that's, that's, that's the tone of the chapter and what's going on. And so, uh, the reason why he, he's saying that life is so kind of frustrating is because in order to uh, keep our hearts and our minds from being swept into the rage machine of fear and worry and anxiety, we need a wisdom that can lift us above the fray. We need an acute awareness, like a child on Christmas morning, that knows something good that will make our faces shine. We need an anchor that our souls can be anchored to something that is immovably good, immovably powerful, unfazed by the fragile volatility that is the human experience. We need an anchor, and that anchor is Jesus Christ. That anchor is Christ alone. That's where the whole depressing tone of Ecclesiastes is pointing us, towards that liberation of Christ alone. Why Christ alone? Why? Because life is full of people, your life is full of people, that are constantly making power plays like that unjust king. In verse 4, and in ver- verse 4 says, it's affecting your life and you cannot take them to task because you do not have the power to take them to task. The text says, who can say to the king, what are you doing? And you and I have people in our life that are directly affecting our life, but we cannot say to them, what are you doing? And the answer is they're going to keep doing what they're doing until somebody powerful enough comes along to challenge what they're doing. But, the, but here's the point of the text. It's infuriating because that person's not us. The text is not saying sit back and do nothing. Just grit your teeth until Jesus comes back. That's not the gospel, right? If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're exploring faith, if you look through Christian history, Christians built hospitals. Christian built, Christians have built universities. The Christians looked out on the culture and said, how can we be a blessing in our city and care and love our neighbor, even those who don't share and worship our God? So the Christian faith isn't like, hey, let's hide in our churches and build these little amusement parks where we all just kind of hang out and, and um, you know, entertain each other until the return of our Lord. That's not what Christian faith does. It's an outward facing faith where we desire to love and serve the city. So don't mistake Ecclesiastes 8 for saying, you can't do anything about it anyway, so just hang out in church and stay at home. That's not what he's saying. Because you'll see in verse 6, he's saying there's a wise time and there's a wise place and there's a wise way to engage. 
But you're not going to get the wise time, and you're not going to get the wise way, and you're not going to get the wise place. And there will be no wisdom in your engaging, and your face will not be shining in your engaging, and you will not be able to go and and, uh, be a, a loving blessing in culture with civility if you don't have a tremendous confidence and an anchor in something that is good and unmoving. That's what this provokes. So everything that we do to love and bless the culture must flow from an immovable anchor. And that's why verse 4 says, before you get, you know, engaged, get contemplative. Where are you locating all of your hope? And so, yes, there are these outliers that change the world, right? Of course, but that's not the point of this text. So we want to stay faithful to the point of this text. Millions and millions of people who suffer injustice never get justice and then die never getting justice is tragic, and that's the point of this text. The point of this text is to cause for us to go, whoa, let's think uh, very thoughtfully about the implications of this injustice. Right? So yes, get active, yes, but before we get active, let's get contemplative, right? What, what is this saying? Verse 10 says, the wicked, they get to wear two faces. They wear one face to church and they wear one face to, into the city. And everybody praises them in life. And they're heroes in their eulogies after they die. But we all know they're unjust, wicked people, constantly manipulating, doing power plays, and controlling people's lives. And then they die and then people say at their funerals, they were great, they were world changers, they changed their lives. And Solomon is saying, the injustice is nauseating me. And he says it's so frustrating that it seems like, the song says, it makes more sense to laugh with the sinners than to cry with the saints because only the good die young. That's Ecclesiastes 8, the beginning of the first nine verses, okay? That's the tone. In verse 11, he says the people are getting away with injustice because they can. Why are they getting away with it? Why? If you look at verse uh, 11, he gives us the answer. He says because the sentence doesn't come speedily. In other words, those who have stratospheric power and resource and influence are under the impression that they're above the law, that they can make the law. In Solomon's case, they are making the law. And so they're like, I can keep on doing this because who's going to stop me? P.S. Nobody. So they keep doing it. This is the world that Solomon lived in. This is the world you and I live in. Again, it's not saying sit back and do nothing. Verse 6, again, says there's a wise place and time to do something. That's not the, but the point is to get us to sit and go, who's going to fix this? Who's going to take the wrongs of humanity and make them right? Who's going to take the injustice and make it right? Who's going to clean up the world? How is this going to happen? Is it going to be a political messiah? You know, I was at the uh, presbytery meeting in Nova Scotia this week. I flew out there to meet with all the, the pastors and elders from eastern Canada. And on my way, I drove to Toronto with uh, my taxi uh, driver. He was a Muslim guy. And we had a fantastic conversation for 45 minutes about the gospel. Here's how I started it. I said, um, I said you know, tell me, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I said, I'm not, um, you know, well-versed in the, in the Muslim faith. So what does the Quran say about this? What does the Quran say about, you know, who God is and how do you get to know God? And how do you know at the end of your life God accepts you? And what does it say about, and I just kept asking him questions and then he would tell me. And then after he told me, I would say, wow, that is so interesting. Here's what the Christian scriptures say about that. And then I just preached the gospel for 45 minutes on the way to Toronto to this, to this gentleman. Now, the reason I bring that up at this point is because we got onto the world that we're living in and evil and injustice and who's going to make it right. And I said to him, so how does this play out? I mean, who's going to fix this? What, when you gather at the mosque and they talk about um, the life you're to live in culture and to you know, love your neighbor and these sorts of things that you know, he's saying to me that you know, this, uh, how they are to relate 
to their neighbors. I said, so tell me, how, 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 who's going to fix it? See, because in the Muslim faith, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, and he's not returning, and he's not fixing anything. So I was kind of provoking who's going to fix it. And it was very interesting dialogue we had about who's going to make the wrongs right in the world. See, that's what Solomon is provoking here in, verse, in the first 11 verses, is who's going to fix this thing? It's because all of our inner childs want to say, you're not the boss of me, but they're the government. They are the boss of you. They say, oh yeah, but we can vote and we can change things and we're a democracy. Yes, I know, but here's the beautiful thing about democracy is we all get a voice. The limiting thing about democracy is that a mass of people voting one particular way does not necessarily constitute truth. It just constitutes the majority of people who voted a particular way. That isn't necessarily the definition of truth. That's an odd definition of truth. See, democracy is great because we can all um, be engaged and active in our parliamentary system, so it's very good. But it's also very limiting because if there is no God, then who gets to climb up into the throne and be him? And then on what basis are your ethics superior to mine? And on what basis is your worldview, the correct one in my worldview, narrow? Because if both of us are at a point of disagreement, then how is it that I am the intolerant one and you're tolerant? This is the great irony. See, pluralism is good because we can thrive in a city where we can, we can be shoulder to shoulder with those who don't share our faith or have non-faith and we can love them, care for them, and we can do, do good in the city together. And that is a very good thing. That is a benefit of pluralism. But the challenge of pluralism is then who gets to decide what is right. And Solomon looks out on the world and he goes, we got a problem. Somebody's got to fix this and it won't be us. In the words of Peter Hitchens, the British, uh, uh, the British writer who's brother to Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist scientist, in his words, we're homeless utopians. If you reject the God of heaven, we're still incapable of creating heaven for ourselves. So we're homeless utopians. And so the reason, of course, why Solomon's so frustrated, frustrated by this is because what seems logical is that if you're a good person, you should get a good life. And if you're a bad person, you should get a bad life. But that's not the world. He says, man, if only karma were true and karma is so attractive, oh, don't worry, they're going to get theirs. We tell ourselves like that, that so we can sleep at night. But if you think globally across cultures and look through the corridor of church, church, uh, not church history, but world history, that is not true. People don't get what's coming to them. Every day, people aren't getting what's coming to them. So who will fix it? Christians love karma too. We say obedience equals blessing, and we treat blessing like it's currency. Obey God, and then your life will be good. It will? Is that globally true? Is that historically true? If I were to get on a plane and go to Syria to preach to the Christians there, can I say to them, listen, if you just obey God a little more, your life will be good? Listen, if you obey God, your life will be blessed, tremendously blessed, but blessed in a way that you can't conceive, broader and bigger and more beautiful. A wisdom that makes your face shine when it has no business shining. That's the blessing of God. The presence of God in the midst of your torment and your tragedy, when you have no business having peace, yet you have it. When you have rest, when you have no business having rest, yet you have it. That's the blessing of God. But the modern pop theologians that have, that have uh, you know, utterly vomited this nonsense across North America over the last 50 years, they tell you, obedience is currency. And if you'd only obey a little more, then your life would be good. And it's not true. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is there to, sh to, to relieve us of that, to say, look, relax, it's not true. The entire book of Job is like that, to say, relax. Obedience isn't currency. We don't do it to earn anything from God. We're not gaining anything from God. We do it simply because we're blown away by the grace of God. Obedience is a byproduct of a heart set free that is gripped from grace. Obedience is not currency. 
Obedience is not barter with God, it's bread to nourish us in God. We, we obey God to get God because we need God. So that he can set our hearts free and liberate us in a world that doesn't seem to make any sense. And so the reason why, why uh, we desire to understand it in this way is because we don't want to become like Job's friends to one another and to, our friend, to, to others. These ill-advised, you know, these, these ill-advised goons with religious toolboxes showing up to people in suffering and saying, you know, there's probably some sin in your life and that's why this is happening. Maybe. Or maybe they're like Job and they wake up every day and they love Jesus and they praise his name and they glorify his name and they, it, it, it takes all they can do to, to roll out of bed and get to church in the morning because they have so much difficulty and hardship in, your, in their life yet they love Christ and they desire to obey him and life is still hard. They still can't make ends meet or, or, and, and, and they're requiring uh, God to come in and provide for them or their body's still full of cancer or something's happening. Solomon looks out on the world and he says, listen, don't develop a karma idea about how God works and about his grace and about what's going on here. That's going to be tragic in your life. God doesn't owe anybody anything. And yet, in a staggering contradiction of what we actually deserve, his grace rescues us and it renews us and it promises to restore everything. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes into the darkness and he makes our face shine. Jesus came into a world of injustice and Jesus lived out perfect justice. Jesus came into a world of utter foolishness and he walked with utter wisdom. He was wisdom personified. Jesus came into a world full of deceit and he brought truth. He came into a world of greed and he lived with tremendous generosity. Jesus Christ came into a world plagued with hate and he showed perfect love. Jesus Christ came into a world just absolutely tormented by violence and he brought peace. Ecclesiastes 8 is a passage about an unjust king who used power to oppress people. Jesus is the only king in world history who laid down his power and died to save people. Jesus didn't accrue power, he laid it down. He didn't shed people's blood to build his kingdom, he shed his own blood to build his kingdom. This passage is about an unjust king who determines his rule of law. Jesus is a king who came in your place and he fulfilled the demands of his law. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we all should have lived but were not. Jesus Christ died an atoning death for all of us and he took all of our sin. Jesus Christ rose on the third day. The third day the tomb was empty and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sits down on the throne ruling and reigning. So that though it seems like the powerful kings and queens of culture, of power and influence, hold the key to your joy... They do not. Though it seems like your joy and peace and ability to actually exhale depends on which party is in office or if you get accepted into that school or you get the job or you make the team or the family tension gets resolved or you get the promotion or you win the contract, it does not. Those little kings and queens are not on the throne. Your life is not in their hands. None of those little kings and queens are on the throne because the throne is well occupied and your life is in the hands of God. And if you think your life is in the hands of any of these little kings or queens then your life is going to be at unrest, remember the gospel and your face will shine. Shine like a kid on Christmas morning. It will give you strength in the midst of unrest. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. It's perfect for you. When? In weakness. What is grace for? The tragedy that is being a human in a life that is at unrest and that is unjust. In verse 8, Solomon goes for the jugular. In verse 8, he says, These unjust kings and queens, they have 
manipulated all kinds of people. They have, they have overpowered all kinds of people, but they're not going to manipulate death and they're not going to overpower death. But there is a king that overpowered death. And your life is in the hands of that king. And in the end, injustice will not win. Verse 12 teaches us that in the end, nobody's getting away with anything. The complaint of this text is that people are getting away with all kinds of things. And verse 12 says, nobody's getting away with anything. See, if there was no God, and there's only this short little life you have under the sun before your, your entire life is washed away in an ocean of time, then everybody's getting away with everything. But there is a God. And that means there's a divine standard of what is true and good, and nobody's getting away with anything. And you know what? That would be very bad news for me, and that'd be very bad news for every Christian in this room if it weren't for grace. Because as we want to look out on the window, from the windows of our churches, from the glistening citadels of our righteousness, and look out on the culture and say, oh, like the Pharisee, thank God that I'm not like that person. We're exactly like that person. If it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, the injustice that we want to see poured out on the heads of those that are doing injustice would be poured out on us too. Some pop, you know, theologians, modern theologians, have wrongly, wrongly tried to make God appear more loving by, re, by removing judgment, removing sin, not talking about sin, making sure their sermons, they don't say sin. They don't say their sin. Pop theology is a nightmare because it tries to make God more loving and it makes him infinitely less loving. Here's why. If a judge in a courtroom dismisses injustice, then while he has wrongly tried to extend grace to the one who is unjust, he has simultaneously done a tragic miscarry of justice and shown no grace for the victim. So if a judge lets somebody go who is unjust, half the courtroom says, yay, we got away with it. They cry, we got away with it. The other side of the courtroom cries, they got away with it. So you've got a tragic miscarry of injustice and you've got a tragic delusional diagnosis of grace. So when the modern theologian says, let's not about, talk about judgment, because that's not popular. Let's not talk about hell, because that's not popular. Let's not talk about sin. Don't tell the church that there's sinners that need grace every day, because that's not popular. You might offend people. It's a tragic miscarry of the diagnosis of grace. Why is grace amazing if you don't need it every day? Don't tell me it's amazing if you wake up every day secretly thinking that you need it at one point, you don't need it now. There's nothing amazing about that. Stop lying to yourself. There's nothing exciting about that grace. It's a child waking up every morning like a child on Christmas morning that marvels at the grace that covers them. And so Solomon says, in the end, nobody's getting away with anything. But that, that would include us if it wasn't for Christ. Which is what makes us like the little kid that God plays peekaboo with over and over and over and over. And the child could play peekaboo all day and find it amazing. That's what grace is for us. It's constantly should be surprising you. If you come to church one morning at Redeemer and we get up during confession and you're kind of thinking, ah, I had a good week. I don't really, I could probably skip confession this week because I'm so And the peekaboo is no longer surprising to you? And the grace is no longer causing you to marvel? Something has gone tragically wrong in your understanding of justice and mercy. The cross is where justice and mercy intersect and meet. Because God is not an unjust judge who at the end of time goes, ah, let's just pretend, okay, yeah, everybody's okay, everybody's fine. He came himself and incarnated himself and he died and he bled and he took the punishment 
so that we could enjoy the radicality of this, of this righteousness, of his righteousness. This is, the, this is the beautiful truth of it. The reason why we wrestle with this God of judgment, we don't like talking about sin or hell, is because we're modern Westerns. But if you're not a North American, then this is probably not your hang-up. You know, there are scores of cultures around the world today and historically who have no problem with the idea of a God of judgment also being a God of love. What they have a problem with is grace. I'm going to quote for you, because I can't fathom why someone would be forgiven. I'm going to quote for you from Miroslav Volf, who uh, did a writing. He's a, he's a Croatian theologian who wrote a, a piece called Exclusion and Embrace, and this is what he says. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been abused, whose fathers have been killed, and your point to them is to live a life of nonviolence? Your point to them is that they should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. If God were not a God who was angry at injustice and deception and who in the end did not put an end to final violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And that's how most of the world feels. I mean, there's only 40 million Canadians and we're only like 200, you know, we're only like 150, you know, two years old or whatever. I mean, we're the teenagers of the world. We think we have everything figured out. Don't talk to me about judgment and justice, man. If there was a God, there's no way he would. Just be quiet, you crazy, you know, adolescents of the universe. That's us as Canadians. Like we have it all figured out. The rest of the world is like, why would I worship that God that allows the injustices to go? Solomon says in the end, nobody's getting away with anything. But here's the good news. You and I, because of Jesus Christ, we already, have our, we already have our verdict, and it's not guilty. Judgment day is coming. But for all who are here, who have placed their faith in Christ, judgment day already happened on the cross. A verdict is coming. But for those of us who, by grace and faith alone, apart from our works, lest any of us should boast, who are united to Christ, on ju- we already have a verdict. And it is not guilty. And this is the glory, and this is this is the glorious grace of God. You see, this universe exists because of love. God created everything out of His perfect love. God is the God is love personified. The law of God is love. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly, and the world will be a beautiful place. But none of us love God perfectly. None of us love our neighbor perfectly, and that's why the world is the way that it is. And so, we're all guilty. But the good news of the gospel is actually found in verse 14 here. In the middle of this whole thing, while Solomon is saying, everybody's, you know, everybody's going to get away with anything and this is, everything and this is meaningless. Verse 14 says, wicked people seem to be getting what the righteous deserve and righteous people seem to be getting what the wicked deserve. That's Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one who came and took what we, the wicked, deserve. We are the wicked, in verse 14, that are in the, in the end going to get what the righteous deserves. That's the glory of grace. And what are the implications of this? How do we live day to day in light of this? Verse 15 and 16. Eat, drink, be merry, be joyful, church. See, if there's no God and Christ did not rise and there was no resurrection, you got to eat and drink to forget. 
You've got to drink to forget where this whole thing is headed. But there is a God, and Christ did rise, so we eat and drink to remember. We eat and drink to celebrate. Ah, if there's only life under the sun, eat, drink, eat, drink, and be merry, because you better forget where this whole thing is going. Because you need to blink your eye, and you and the cockroach get the same report card, D for death. But, united to Christ, you and I eat, drink, rejoice. We remember where this whole thing is going. We celebrate where this whole thing is going. So now, verse 6 makes sense. Now there's a proper time and a proper way for us to engage the culture. There's a proper time and a proper way for us to love our city. There's a proper time and a proper way to speak out against injustice. Why? Because our face is shining. Because we are anchored to something that is immovable and true. Christ alone. Your life is in the hands of the death-proof savior of the world who is holding the the world together with the word of his power. United to Jesus by grace and faith, you are loved with a love that is so strong that death itself will not hold you. So let the radicality of that gospel promise break into the darkness of your worry like the sun's rays dissipate the fog. This is the good news and the eternal implications. This is the wisdom that has the power that while fear casts its shadow, your face will shine. Amen.